Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program is Jesse Single. He's a contributing writer at New York Magazine, and he's currently working on a book that covers social psychology, TED Talk culture, and the intersection of social justice. He's a biting commentator on Twitter. And uh, he wrote a a really important take, I think, that I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about. I talked to him last week, and the week prior to that, there was a mass shooting in the state of Texas where a 26-year-old white man went into a church, shot it up, and killed 26 people tragically. Um, And there were a number of takes, most of which came out of the liberal, progressive, and radical left that ascribed the causality of the shooting to the perpetrator's whiteness. And uh, Jesse Single wrote a really excellent refutation of that in New York Magazine. It's called Whiteness Doesn't Cause Mass Shootings. And this line of argumentation will be very familiar to those of you who listened to my anti-essentialism series this past summer. So Jesse is the man to build on some of these arguments that are coming from the radical left that purport to be anti-racist and progressive. But Jesse and I are going to reveal that at their heart... They are actually reactionary and conservative and rely on essentializing notions of, you know, the way in which you can allegedly predict people's behaviors and outcomes by the pigmentation in their skin. And we're going to get to the deeper causes of violence, mass shootings, social alienation, and all the rest of it in the episode to come. In the second half, Jesse's also, as I mentioned previously, working on a long book-length treatment of the intersection of social psychology and social justice, anti-racism, prejudice, and all the rest of it. Central to that thesis, he wrote another article. I'll put this up on the show notes, also in New York Magazine this past summer. It's called Psychology's Favorite Tool for Measuring Racism Isn't Up to the Job. And that's where he unveils the implicit association test which purports to offer a quick, easy way to measure how implicitly biased individual people are. So this is allegedly a psychological tool that you can use. It's a test, and you'll find out how racist you are behind maybe your own back. And so what's the problem with this, you say? Well, if we can find out that people are biased, that's a good thing. Well, as we will unveil throughout the course of the interview, these accusations of individual whiteness... And these accusations of individual bias perfectly feed into the narrative of neoliberalism, which is to say that we need individual solutions to our collective economic, social, and political problems, which is why the TED Talk culture has taken off in such a big way. There's a lot of money, a lot of funding, a lot of interest behind this. The policymakers are desperate to avoid the underlying economic and political issues that are just killing people throughout society so jesse and i are going to break that down for you before i bring you that interview i just want to give a big shout out to my patrons over on patreon.com thanks for all of your support financial spiritual emotional psychological and otherwise got a lot of subscriptions in the past several weeks 
And I think that's due to the fact that I'm releasing a B-side almost every week for your enjoyment. Folks will know by now that I've had some fire guests lately. I had on uh, Leo Panich. There's an excellent B-side where we go into his biography as, as a man who's been on the left for 50-some-odd years. We delve into his history and what it, what, it, what it was like to come up in the late 60s and 70s on the socialist left. I've got a really great B-side with Steve Marr where we talk about corporations in the state and the restructuring of the corporate you know, entity inside of the state and what that means for our political action today. Got a really great B-side from last week from Adam Hilton, where we talk about the history of the Democratic Party and the left and what that means for our strategy today as progressives and socialists and interacting with the Democratic Party. I've had some people say, hey, man, that's the best treatment of the Democratic Party that I've ever heard. It's It's the most comprehensive, most politically applicable to our struggle today. And I think they're spot on with that. That was a great episode. So to get access to all of that and more, Go on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at $5 a month or more and you will get access to all of that footage, all of that bonus content. Uh, There won't be a B-side this week, but I'm going to be right back at it next week to just keep on churning out out those B-sides, folks. I just, you know, every day I'm hustling. You know what I'm saying? I got to keep that content rolling. I got to tell you, man, I got a back catalog of guests and show ideas it's going to take me into like 2019 for God's sake. So I'm just, I'm just chomping at the bit. I've got all of this great content, so many amazing guests that I'm just dying to talk to. So go to patreon.com, support the new left agenda. Let's keep this thing going and uh, lots more good stuff coming your way. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jesse single. Enjoy. So why are white middle-class males usually the ones committing mass murders? And why is this fact being overlooked or not discussed? Uh, Trump, you know, Trump makes hay out of the fact that, uh, you know, that white men in particular um, feel as though they're the victims of this society despite being in absolute control of it. So what makes a violent act an act of terrorism? It's a question many people are asking today across the globe and on social media. Over the weekend in Edmonton, a Somali suspect there after an attack was quickly labeled as a terrorist by authorities after an ISIS flag was found in his vehicle. Though in Las Vegas, where a white man is allegedly responsible for the death of more than 50 people, officials there have yet to call this terrorism. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Jesse Single. He is a contributing writer at New York Magazine, and he's got a book coming out aimed for 2019. That book is on social psychology, TED Talk culture, and the intersection of social justice. That's out of Farrar, Strauss, and Guru. Jesse, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So you wrote a really interesting piece uh, this week for the Daily Intelligencer blog coming out of New York Magazine, and it really resonated with some of the things that I was sort of uh, uh, ranting about on Twitter, and we connected, and I decided to have you on the show because you have a really interesting perspective. So last week, we saw a horrific massacre in Texas uh, committed by 26-year-old Devin Kelly, uh, where he entered a church. Uh, with uh, automatic or, or semi-automatic weapons, assault rifles, and uh, killed 26 people. Uh, there are a number of takes, predictably coming from the left in the progressive blogosphere, 
They characterize this shooting as the result of, uh, you know, a whiteness or whiteness culture or white supremacy. And you had an interesting take on that. The article is called Whiteness Doesn't Cause Mass Shootings. So tell us about your impulse to write this piece and uh, what's the backstory behind it? Yeah, basically, I had seen this Democracy Now! interview with uh, George Chicarella Mar, who's a radical professor at Drexel, um, basically arguing that, you know, we could look at things like gun control, but in his view, what we really need to look at is why white people are doing this. Uh, and he complained, I'm quoting directly here, mm-hmm. You know, whiteness is never seen as a cause in and of itself of these kinds of massacres, of other forms of violence, despite the fact that whiteness is a structure of privilege and it's a structure of power and a structure that, when it feels threatened, you know, lashes out. So he's pretty clearly arguing that whiteness should be seen as a cause in and of itself, in his own words, for why this guy shot up a church. And, you know, he goes on to say... These days, white people feel increasingly entitled because of Trump. Uh, He makes a bunch of claims about militarism, uh, about weapons sales. He just sort of runs down a litany of left-wing complaints and ties it together in this unclear way into this concept of whiteness. And to me, this is a terrible way to explain a mass shooting. Uh, For one thing, Kelly uh, cracked his infant skull's skull his infant son's skull in 2012. He he beat his partner. There was a long history of domestic violence there. You know, other reporting has come out about the military's lack of a response that could have prevented him from getting these weapons. So we have a pretty clear emerging picture of why he did what he did, or at least what have, could have prevented that. To sweep all that aside and say he did it because of his capital W whiteness doesn't really make sense as a causal explanation. Uh, Chicarello Mar is also buying into this popular claim that when you look at mass shooters, white people are are overrepresented. There's two problems with that. One is that it just isn't true. Uh, Daniel Engber of Slate actually tried to chase down data on that, and it it looks like you know white people do approximately per- the proportion of mass shootings you would expect given demographics. So it, right, right. it doesn't really make sense to pin this on white people. But more importantly. To make that argument that because one group commits an act of violence more than other groups proportionally, it's swinging open the door to this entire dark history of really bad arguments that have tended to hurt people of color and marginalized people. So my basic argument is either we can or can't make judgments about entire groups of people based on crime rate differences. And for a long time, progressives have argued, rightfully in my view, that you can't. So then to just say... No, no, actually you can if the person is white. I just think that's a really counterproductive argument. And I I don't want to give the impression that I view a quote-unquote anti-white argument as morally equivalent to an anti-black argument because anti-black arguments have a long-running body count, as I point out in the article. They have a really dangerous history. They have a structure to them that anti-white arguments don't. My point is those two lines of thinking are both just really – facile way of trying to understand violence and they they don't get us any explanatory power they they're just not a good way to understand the world they're a a politically convenient feel-good way to understand the world they don't get us anywhere just for my audience's sake here the slate piece that you're referring to written by daniel engber is called mass shooters aren't disproportionately white telling title as it is 
Yep. Probably given to it by the editor. But his point is just that, right? He, he chases down some statistics and demonstrates that actually uh, white people in the U.S. are not disproportionately represented in the numbers of uh, you know mass uh, murderers, mass shooters in particular. Um, so your introduction was very comprehensive. So let's let's take those uh, let's take that down piece by piece. It seems to me that the most compelling version of this argument that comes out after mass shootings from the left in progressive circles is to try to is to try to debunk this notion of 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 racial hypocrisy that the the, the news media reacts differently when the shooter is a white male versus when the shooter is either black or certainly when the shooter is muslim. And now that just seems to be fundamentally true and that's 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 something that I'm sure you agree with as well. There is a hypocrisy there. Um so th- talk to me a little bit about the media's representation of of Muslim mass, uh, you know, uh, murderers and and black and versus a uh, uh, white, you know, lone wolf male uh, mass murderers. Sure. Yeah, and I and I, you know, I want to be careful here. I <laughs> as a member of the media, I'm always a little bit uh weary about making broad statements about the media, but I I think it's very safe to say that there's a racialized component to this coverage. Mm-hmm. And particularly when an act of violence is committed by a Muslim, you're much more likely to immediate see people immediately assume it's an act of terror. You know, the fact that terrorism is is underdefined frequently is a whole other issue. You're much more likely for people to assume that, you know, some disgruntled 20-year-old schmuck who exchanged messages with an ISIS operative twice over Facebook is part of some international conspiracy. And you're much more likely to see reasoning of the form oh, the fact that a Muslim did this can tell us X, Y, Z about Muslims. They're more violent, they're more radical. And these accounts are terrible. And and they're dumb, frankly, because they ignore the fact that, among other things, ISIS mostly kills other Muslims. The vast majority of Muslims have a lot more to fear from ISIS from the, than the vast majority of, of ISIS's non-Muslim victims. So right. to the extent someone like Chikorel Omar is responding to those types of arguments and those discrepancies in media coverage – they are responding to a real thing. The question is, how do you respond to it? And that's where I think he goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think you know what, what's what, what's connected to this racial hypocrisy argument, which is a very valid point, as you as you rightly raise. There is this uh, immediate, uh, you know, turn from the racial hypocrisy to this notion of well, that is evidence of a hegemonic whiteness in in the United States and in the media. And this is expressed in uh, by George Chicarello Marr when he basically says there is a feeling among white men in the United States in the era of Trump that they are losing their country, whereas in fact uh, they, as in white men, are in control of the country uh, themselves. And so they really truly have nothing to fear, which – at an incredibly, you know, abstract macroscopic level, uh, there's there's some truth to that in terms of like who, what's the racial and gender composition of people who sit on corporate boards or in elected office at the highest levels, uh, oftentimes older white men. However, uh, there's a tremendous amount of differentiation among you know white men across the country, and perhaps. Some of those people uh, are right to feel, um, you know, wronged by their bosses or, or otherwise. So, talk to me a little bit about this this leap of faith 
that George Chicarello Marr makes from the racial hypocrisy argument to the notion of this kind of uh, homogenous hegemonic whiteness. Yeah, he. I mean, the argument seems to be in the past people have made bad arguments about black people or Muslims and crime. So the response to that should be to make arguments about white people and crime. And to me, you need to establish the principle that intergroup differences in crime rates either can or can't allow you to make uh, claims about those groups' essential characters or flaws. And for a very long time, progressives have done a lot of work. African-American scholars in particular have done a huge amount of work trying to knock down this idea that because the black crime rate is higher, you can say black people are more violent or less evolved or more primitive. Khalil Gibran Muhammad has wrote a whole book about this, that, that ever since the first census that had racial crime rates in, I think, 1880, a lot of white social scientists and pundits have been trying to say, oh, look, there's proof that blacks are different, that blacks are worse. So that's what uh, Chikorel Omar is responding to, in addition to the Islamophobic stuff. And he's saying, instead of saying we can't make these claims based on group differences, he's saying we can make these claims based on group differences when the perpetrator is white. And as I say in the article, I'm not freaking out about this because I'm worried about anti-white bias. I think anyone who looks at America today and is deeply worried about anti-white bias should maybe read less Breitbart. Yeah, they're, they're not on our side. Let's just be clear about yeah, that. Those people I, are not on our team and we are distancing ourselves from them. And so I, I just want to put that off there because, you know, the hater, haters are going to hate and we're going to get that no matter what. But we might as well come out in front and uh, name it, right? Exactly. And then, in fact, Chikar Elmar's immediate reaction to my article on Twitter was to call it an all lives matter argument, which could not be further from what yeah. I'm arguing. <clears throat> what I'm arguing right. is that we've done a lot of intellectual work, we meaning progressives in the left, to say this style of argument is unacceptable. It's not a realistic sociological or psychological description of why violence occurs. That's absolutely true. But then to score points for radical internet politics to say, no, no, it's okay. We can make these arguments about white people. We can say something about white people's characters. And worse, to do that in a situation where the stats aren't even on your side is just – I find that to be really pernicious and counterproductive. And if some alt-righty shows up now and says to you know, Chikorel Omar, oh, well, I pulled the FBI crime statistics. It turns out black people commit murders at a higher rate. I, I don't know what his response will be because he, he's ceded that rhetorical territory. He said you can make these comparisons. And that's exactly right. I mean we've seen Richard Spencer – the kind of uh, you know <laughs> faux intellectual figurehead of the alt right in the United States take up these kind of like seemingly woke uh, perspectives when it comes to identity, uh, but then sort of wield it in an opposite direction, counter to you know progressive aims, uh, as as you just mentioned, and so in a, in a real dangerous way, this appeal to homogenous and hegemonic whiteness really gives a lot of important rhetorical and strategic tools to our enemies, I think, in a very dangerous way. And you're very right to point to that. Yeah, and I, and I also think, I mean, that, that quote you mentioned earlier, which I had also pulled about uh, white men running everything, yeah, at, at the level of population averages, white men are one of the most advantaged groups to say it's weird that white men run everything and yet some white men would shoot up a church, it, that that isn't a thing. That isn't a statement. Like there, there's an you know I'm not referring specifically to Devin Kelly, but there's an opioid crisis going on, and there's deindustrialization, and there's 
a lot of economic forces that haven't hit white people as hard but have hit millions of white people and the idea again it's just it's just this essentialization that that there's this thing called whiteness and it benefits white people and you can sort of use it to lump together entire groups it it doesn't help and the reason it doesn't help isn't because again anyone is ranting about reverse racism it's because it's just incorrect analysis that doesn't get us anywhere and opens the door to the same bullshit conservative arguments we've been grappling with forever Right. And so this comes from, I mean, you, you approach this from a very sophisticated, but nonetheless journalistic approach. You know, I, I, I delve in the world, my listeners will know, I mean, sort of like dusty books in academia. And a lot of this stuff has its grounding, this whiteness literature, this whiteness studies, a literature that emerged in the 1980s and into the 90s, uh, really takes its lineages from a very narrow reading of W.E.B. Du Bois' reflection on the psychological wage. Uh, a lot of people will have heard this as the wages of whiteness, um, that uh, white workers – the quote-unquote white working class, which is always hard to precisely isolate and identify in reality, but nonetheless, it's this sort of like abstract object that some lefties like to throw around, that that white working class has accepted lower wages because they were socially superior to their black co-workers, uh, which is this quote, you know, psychological wage or the wages of whiteness that make them feel more superior despite the fact that they are in fact oppressed and, and hyper exploited and and uh, you know their wages are not rising and, and and their working conditions are becoming more miserable and, and so on and so forth. And now there's a tremendous amount, as you mentioned, there's a tremendous amount of of black scholars out there and white scholars and male and female and <laughs> brown, purple, pink, and there's just people who are right thinking and hardworking have discovered that actually this is a very narrow way of reading history. I'd like to have on very soon, I had on Adolf Reed. He's a, he's a very potent commentator of this, but Eric Arneson has gone a long way. Some of the academic types out there will know has gone a long way to debunk this kind of like history of whiteness studies. Other, the late Judith, Judith Stein is, was a luminary in terms of debunking some of this stuff from the intellectual perspective. And so, you know, we we don't hear this kind of stuff often enough coming from academia. Um, I don't know what your take is on all of that as to why. Why do you think this kind of hegemonic homogenous whiteness has taken hold? I think because so my you know I I left New York Magazine to write my book. Um, I mean I'm still contributing there, but for the three years I worked there, I edited and wrote for a blog mostly about psychology. And I think if you talk to the people who study violence from an academic perspective, their theories on what causes violence and what causes mass shootings are just, I want to say, a lot more sophisticated uh, than some of the stuff you get from particularly critical theory and critical race theory. I don't want to draw too broad a brush because, you know, folks like Michelle Alexander, who I learned a ton from her book, mm -hmm. are included as, critical theory is now such a broad category. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think there's a category of critical theory argument, like the one Chikorel Omar made, where you just throw around these big sort of cosmic concepts like whiteness and blackness in ways that are so loose that it's impossible to pin down what's the argument that's being made. And I think it's really dangerous to take those sorts of arguments and then apply them to something as rare and specific 
and sort of contextual as a mass shooting. So I think you're much better read on the actual literature um, that you just mentioned, but I think as a general point, race has a role to play in everything, and people are aware of Mm -hmm. the race, and there's a lot of white resentment, but to reduce everything to race and not take into account other factors, you're just going to miss the boat over and over and over. That's one of the central uh, fundamental aims of, of this show, um, as my listeners will know, I've had a number of people on week after week to try to debunk these really flattened historical just-so narratives uh, that, that, the, that the progressive left often sort of uh, you know weaves. That that nicely sums up what what these arguments are, and it's not just Chikorello Mar. I mean, I, I the Engbar story sort of cites article after article about we need to figure out what's wrong with white people. White people are doing mass shootings. They're they're just-so stories. There, there's no way. The way they're constructed, you can't respond to them. You can't nitpick the way you can usefully nitpick a real argument. The goalposts are always shifting. It's a style of rhetoric not designed to engage in like real discourse. It's it just sort of throwing up a flag saying – again, it's a term I hate to throw around, but it's, it's wokeness. It's like, look, I get it. I speak the same language as you. Right, right. There's a there's a signaling. There's a there's a kind of rhetorical signaling. I want to I want to put up a clip that I actually got from uh, my appearance on Zero Books podcast. Uh, Douglas Lane, the publisher over at Zero Books, uh, put this clip up, and it's by Glenn Lurie. It was actually from 1994. He was way ahead of the game, and he talks about how the pre on the progressive left, the, your presentation and the words that you use are perhaps more important than your actual argument because it, it, it really uh, determines in advance the kind of credibility that you will or will not have with your audience. So it matters who is saying things. We want to know what kind of person is speaking to us. What I have in mind here is the following kind of problem, the problem where a consensus comes about that certain kinds of expression have meanings above and beyond what might literally be attempting to be conveyed. They stand in for something. They're symbolic. Then we draw the conclusion that a person who's unwilling to engage in the symbolism must not believe in some cherished value of the community. And as a consequence, we're prepared to ostracize or worse. It's a convention about the fact that expressing oneself in a certain way conveys some larger meaning. And when we find people who willfully choose not to follow the convention, we're prepared to draw a conclusion that, in effect, they don't share the value which is symbolically reflected in that particular conventional form of expression. Now, the kicker here, the thing that makes this work, is that in many circumstances, it is correct to presume that people who don't share the value would be more willing to run the risk of ostracism by breaking the convention and expressing themselves in an unapproved way, disapproved way. And and he really notes that this signaling and this in-group cohesion that is fostered by that signaling is oftentimes more important in left discourse than the actual arguments uh, that are being made. I think he pointed that rightly. So let's talk a little bit about the pessimism of this perspective. Yep. Um, that's that's another troubling aspect that you sort of point to in your article, and I, maybe you could sort of elaborate on that. It seems like painting these ever-present, historically dominant narratives of of homogenous whiteness will lead us to believe that it's just always going to be that way and, and kind of give us this defeatist mindset. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you view one of the benefits of this sort of 
woolly view of whiteness you know inspired by a lot of critical theory where you never really pin things down and say exactly what you mean or or, or strictly make causal predictions or arguments is it's just this mystical force that's always there and it's unclear how political progress could be made and you know these arguments are tricky because i i think there's like big swaths of America where people of color really do continue to experience systemic disadvantage in all sorts of different ways. Um, I was just looking at some, it's a crude measure. I was just looking at some of the stats about uh, money per student for black students versus white students in different states. And, you know, it's just stuff that'll make you want to punch a wall. Same goes for just black versus white family wealth. So the point isn't to ignore this stuff. It's to put it into context and to point to those areas where things have improved because things have improved in certain areas. And if we can't acknowledge that or try to figure out what, you know, the political and psychological forces that, for example, led to huge uh, changes in white public opinion over the last however many decades, this stuff is really, really complicated. And And to say that progress can't be made or that whiteness or white supremacy is just this monolithic, invincible force, I I don't think that's accurate. Although I can definitely understand how for people caught in certain aspects of the system, that would be an attractive argument and one that seems to explain the world. There is a lot of hopelessness. Um, So I I don't want to sort of invalidate people's individual experiences, but at a political level, or even just, you know, what I do at at a political science level or psychological level or trying to explain the world level, these theories just don't really take you anywhere. And you know what I've, what I've found and I talked a little bit about this, uh, Pascal Robert talked about this on my show. Uh, Adolf Reed has really, uh, you know, this is his line of argument. So the Reed heads out there will be familiar with this, but, but at the heart of all of this is really kind of a, a representational politics because what I've discovered actually is that having grown up kind of like, you know, lower middle class in a small town, kind of a you know, I don't know, a Rust Belt ish kind of town, a town that's been you know far past its prime, a post industrial area. What I've discovered is that actually the people who are most affected by this, be they white, black, brown, or, or otherwise, and they're poor and working class, I, I don't actually find that those people are that attracted to these types of narratives. I find that those folks have a far more nuanced and pragmatic orientation to their suffering. I think these discourses come from academia and it comes from sort of upper middle class uh, intellectuals like George Chicarello Marr. Because if you can produce this ever present force in the world and you can make this, you know, a really compelling argument for it that moves large numbers of people, well, you've just placed yourself at the head of this discourse and you then are the representation uh, representative of this discourse and you'll be brought on every you know news show and your name will be in the on, on the you know on the television everybody's television screen and so on and so forth and, and in short you can sort of make a career on the back of this of this interpretation um, and and you can represent this the alleged suffering uh not the, the the real suffering but sort of you know what i mean like frame it so yeah. what, what do you make of that how much how much do you think is in, in play there. I don't know. I, I What I always come back to is like the difference between real activists and, and online slacktivists because I – when you think about what it takes to do something like uh, fix Ferguson, Missouri, when you think about the level of energy and activism and understanding complex power structures it takes to fix that or to try to fix what's going on in Flint with the water crisis, mm-hmm. there's such a – massive chasm between that kind of work, which 
I'm not an expert. I'm not an activist. But from everything I can tell, that is really hard, gritty, you want to die at the end of the day work. And it's invisible work mostly. The difference between that and this sort of sweeping narratives you see on Twitter or you know, in a lot of critical theory about we're going to dismantle whiteness, we're going to dismantle white supremacy. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I guess I'm in favor of that, but I frequently don't know exactly what it means or exactly what the plan is. <clears throat> Whereas if you talk to sort of even just a basic community organizer who knows how to register people to vote or how to make it so that you know, black people in Ferguson aren't getting shaken down so the fucking all-white police department can buy new, you know, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but you know what I mean? Like, there's actual, there are actual things you can do to make the world better. And if you want to frame that as I'm chipping away at whiteness or white supremacy, I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is is the people who just present these sweeping narratives but have no actual ideas with any freaking connection to the real world. Right. I just want to touch on one more thing and we'll move on. But the, the, I think one of the biggest problems uh, with, with this kind of these sweeping narratives is the way in which they really uh, deny contradiction or, or a further investigation. So, for example, if one of the most prominent uh, kind of exceptions is explained away is the fact that what happens when you have a black cop? Right, because the idea is the, the the police are this white supremacist force, which there there's a lot there's a historical argument to be made where that could be seen as true. Right, police forces uh, being sort of constituted as slave catching, you know, forces leading up to the Civil War and so on. Um, there are other cases where the police were actually you know anti labor, which were set up to to beat up uh, white working class men, you know, uh, in in the early U.S. Uh, you know in, in European state history. In any case, when there's a black cop, the exception always reads, well, that black cop is co-opted by the forces of white supremacy. And that, that seems disturbing to me, and I, I want your take on this, because it seems, to, it seems to remove the agency from, say, that black cop, yeah. right? It seems to remove – and so what we're doing there is by making these sweeping narratives, we're actually removing the forces that motivate people to, to, to you know, act in pragmatic ways in the world around them. Yeah, there's um, two recent good books about this you might know about. One is Locking Up Our Own uh, Crime and Punishment in Black America by, by James Foreman Jr. And mm-hmm. he actually specifically has stories. I think they were uh, – D.C., there was this – activist push to to integrate the police force which was like overwhelmingly white in a very black city and that is a very good thing to do you you can't have a police force that just doesn't represent who they're policing but what he points out is it wasn't as though when when you got black cops in there suddenly everyone was getting along and suddenly there wasn't abuse and and wasn't you know violence against civilians it's more complicated than that it, it has to do with class it has to do with power it has to do with fears of crime um and that kind of stuff gets erased by the the grand theorizing, and and I think the other really smart person who pointed that out was uh, Michael Fortner, who wrote a book called Black Silent Majority, mm-hmm. which is about yeah. you know class divides in the black community, mostly in New York, pre Rockefeller laws, and his basic argument is that because of white supremacy and white neglect, the crime situation got so out of control that black residents in effect sort of turned on each other, and there were, there were these really fierce uh, class conflicts where some members, some folks in Harlem would call for really tough, you know, anti-crime measures. And 
uh, you know, that book has, has received some controversy and, and there's a case to be made that he overstated certain elements of it. But the whole point is all of these like actual accounts of what it's like on the ground to be in these cities or what sort of activism works or what sort of police reform works, I think a lot of important complexity gets erased when you only talk about this from the top-down view of mm-hmm. white supremacy as just this cloud over everything. And I, I don't want to argue that people shouldn't talk about white supremacy or shouldn't invoke these big forces, because I believe they're very real. Mm-hmm. I just think at the level of actually trying to get shit done, they're not always the most useful approach to take. Right. I mean, we talk about capitalism all the time, right? I mean, capitalism this, down with capitalism, ah, uh, you know, capitalism's got me down right. again, whatever the boss, the you know, the, the man, whatever, you know, all these sort of big concepts that are very useful that, that that gain a lot of currency but you're right to to point to the fact it's like well we can't stop there right the point is not at to, that, that to sort of stand in as this ultimate supreme placeholder we have to go further so that's that's great i think your 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 article did quite a bit to go to go further and so ultimately i think what what you're pointing at is that this appeal this ex, this universal explanation of kind of like whiteness which is not to say that we can't point to that empirically because i think that's always i just want to be clear about that I mean, there are empirical measures that can sort of back something that could be called whiteness. It just seems that like working from empirical measures to generalizations, now that's the right direction to go, right? But then working from generalizations to account for complex real world phenomenon, that's when you get yourself in trouble. Yeah, and that's what well, that's what Chikar Lamar did. He said – so if his argument was like – you know, if we want to understand white Americans, one thing we need to understand is, you know, they're the only demographic uh, group that went for Trump. I, that's a valid observation. You know, it, it shaves off some of the complexity because you're not talking about class, you're not talking about education, but we do that all the time. We say this group is more democratic, this group's more Republican, this group's more religious, blah, blah, blah. That kind of analysis can be useful. But but you can't then take any individual thing a white person does and say, Oh yeah, that was whiteness at work there. I, it's just it's a kind of reasoning that in any other situation, I don't think anyone would take it seriously. But because it it fits this narrative, and because for understandable reasons, it does feel good to beat up on white people. Like white people have done a lot of horrible stuff. Uh, right, right. So it's just it's not a real it's not real analysis. It's it's fake. I'm going to play a clip really quickly from uh, a debate or an interview, I should say, that Gary Young did uh, for Channel 4 News. Gary Young is a very, very good, I think, in general, a very good commentator, important commentator on race and class and socialism and left politics for The Guardian. Uh, But he was doing a story for Channel 4 News in in the UK, and he tracked down Richard Richard Spencer and had an interview – and uh, I'll play a clip from that where Spencer sort of turns this ethno-identitarianism, uh, this woke identitarianism against Gary Young. You're talking nonsense. How am I talking nonsense? You'll and never that, be an Englishman. You don't and, get to tell me yeah, I do, what I actually, will be. Because my name's Richard Spencer. So I, <laughs> my name's Richard Spencer yes. and I approved this message? Yes, and so therefore I actually, I actually... I actually... Because you've got nothing to say. I was looking... Okay, so you just heard that clip. The difficulty there, I think, is what, what Richard Spencer is appealing to by, by telling a black British man, Gary Young, that he will never be British, never be truly British, and that he should go back to Africa. He's really harping on a kind of an argument that's been made by black radicals for over 150 years where they say, you know, we will never be American. 
or uh, black British people will say, you know, we will never be accepted as British. Um, and you know, that, that's, that's a really principled radical statement to make by acknowledging that being a person of color in these, in the countries with the histories and lineages of white supremacy that they have, that they will always in some sense be a second class citizen. Um, and there's, there's certainly a, 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 a mo- amount of truth to that. However, you see Richard Spencer turning that narrative against them and saying, well, see, you, you people, right, you people, the way they say they generalize, you yourself say you'll never be British. So why are you trying? Leave us Europeans to our, ourselves and you people go do uh, whatever it is that you're doing. So, I mean, how do we think our way outside of that? Yeah, I mean, I think one easy answer is just to recognize m- most people have much more complicated contextual views of their identity. I, I I just think this stuff is complicated, and it's mostly academics and a certain subset of activists who who make these group distinctions most salient and act like they're the only thing that can explain the world. I, I think in most people's day-to-day lives, different aspects of their identity are diff- are salient at different points, and there might be some areas in which they feel like part of Group A, some in which they feel like part of Group B. <clears throat> I, I just think there's... um. This is this is a drum you've been hitting for a long time, beating for a long time. That essentialism leads us some dangerous places, and it isn't a surprise that someone like Spencer and and his gross, disgusting ilk are trying to co-op certain aspects of of lefty language on this stuff. I just I almost don't want to give the the uber woke takes too much credit because I, I do think they're like a they're a seemingly big segment of this discourse online, but. You know, again, right now there are ten thousand community organizers doing stuff we're not going to read about on Twitter and and trying to address real world issues. So, yeah, I want to acknowledge. I guess these are, are maybe unproductive ways of viewing the world, but recognize that the broader left universe is much larger than that. Right. Well said. I mean, it's, it, the the timing here is apt. Uh, this will be played a week after the elections, but we we now are just uh, the day after the election here as we're recording. And, uh, you know, a number of progressive Democrats, Greens and open socialists were just sort of swept into office by the actions of those kind of like nameless, faceless, nose to the grindstone types of activists who are out there doing the real work. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'd like to see them on democracy now rather than, you know, I don't know, blowhard academics. Uh, yeah, I said it. Blowhard academics. <laughs> I, I can do that because I am one, <laughs> right. right? Isn't that the yeah, way exactly. it works? <laughs> like you can talk shit on journalists because you are one and, and so I can talk shit on my own. Yeah, jur- no, journalists are terrible. Don't get me wrong. We're awful. So let's, that was good. Let's turn for the second half of the show to the topic of your book. Uh, for the rest of the audience, I'm going to link to another great article. It's rather long. Uh, it's uh, on NewYorkMagazine.com. I, I presume it's kind of like the, 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 the background uh, story for your book. It's called Psychology's Favorite Tool for Measuring Racism Isn't Up to the Job. So give us a little uh, scoop about what that what your thesis is there, and then maybe lead us into the book that you are diligently writing uh, right now and and, uh, what that's all about. Sure. So about 20 years ago, these researchers came up with something called the Implicit Association Test. And if you Google Project Implicit right now, uh, you can take a version of this test, or, or many versions actually, at Harvard University's website. The basic idea is it you sit down and it flashes different words and images at you. Um, 
so it'll say, for example, hit uh, the I key when you see something good, hit the E key when you see something bad, and then it'll flash words like, you know, pain, pleasure, happiness, sweet, and it'll also mix them up with mix those words up with images of black faces versus white faces, or sometimes black names versus white names. And the basic idea is that if if you have more trouble quickly connecting black faces with good concepts versus white faces with good concepts, that's a sign that you're implicitly biased. And that suggests that you will make these sort of gut-level, split-second decisions in your real life in a discriminatory way. Um, So a classic example of that would be, will a cop shoot a suspect in an ambiguous situation? And the idea of implicit bias is that they're more likely to shoot black people than white people if they're implicitly biased. So we need to separate out two concepts here. Uh, I think there is a tremendous amount of evidence that implicit bias in some settings is real. For example, there have been studies where black names on resumes get fewer callbacks, get fewer interviews than white names. So I think there's evidence for that. Um, right. And how housing as well as one. I mean, my God, I was on, I have to share this. I, I'm looking, I'm, I'm moving soon and I was looking for a place and I was being interviewed by somebody and he sort of made a, I was look, he's showing me around the apartment, you know, here's the kitchen, here's this. And he sort of looks at me and he goes, my God, I'm glad you emailed me because I was getting all sorts of names that I couldn't even pronounce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, whoa, what? I mean, it's not surprising. It's not shocking. That's just a little story, an anecdote that I experienced last week, just to kind of give a little bit of, uh, you know, meat to, to your, your argument. Yeah. And, and there's been really good investigative reporting and activism on that front, too, where they will literally send people, uh, you know, a black couple to try to rent an apartment and then a white couple. Um, that actually gets complicated because the, the situation you just said was explicit racism because he's literally just like, I'm, yeah. I'd rather rent this to a white person. But the point is, in my view, there's overwhelming evidence that if you take like the whole pie of uh, discrimination and racism in America, some slice of it is is implicit, meaning it's these processes where someone could be a little bit racist or act in a little bit racist way without even knowing it. I see. I see. Maybe maybe they themselves, as you write, are even kind of anti-racist activists themselves. <laughs> yeah, for example, I mean. So there's kind of like there's a secret. So that you're, this research sort of indicates that there's something about ourselves that we don't even know. Yeah, and that's always a kind of exciting, provocative thing. Like, oh my god, is there is there do I have a bias that I don't even know? You know, it's. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and it's not only interesting, but like, I, I don't want to be snarky, but imagine how many self-identifying radicals live in basically all white neighborhoods or send their kids to all white schools. Yeah. Um, this is a thing that happens. And okay. So that the first thing to understand is implicit bias is real. I, I, I think everyone should be convinced it's real. The question of how much of the overall pie of sort of American racism is implicit bias. That's an empirical question. That's tough to answer. Okay, so you have this test. The test is saying to you, this test will tell you how likely you are to act in an empirically, uh, sorry, in an implicitly biased way. Hmm. That claim has been made like in really aggressive ways. The the people who created this test, um, one of whom, Mazarin Banaji, is now the head of psychology at Harvard, they claim that the test does a really good job with that and that implicit bias could explain everything from Again, police shootings, housing discrimination, all this other stuff. 
and they made the, they made these claims in this really bold, attention-getting way in their book. So basically, what my article was was an attempt to look through the literature and to get the voices of some of the critics out there. And and what has been revealed is that if you actually take all these studies about the implicit association test and lump them together, there's effectively no evidence that the IAT predicts behavior in the real-world setting. And there's a lot of evidence that those differences in reaction time, where you react a little bit slower or faster to black faces and good versus white faces and good, there could be other psychological processes going on there that that account for those differences. Um, and yet, this test has been marketed so effectively that uh, if you do a diversity training at a school or a corporation, you'll often take it. it, it it's seen as this sort of magical tool that can allow us to peer within ourselves and, and figure out how biased we are. And, and there's just a really weak case that that's actually what's going on. It's almost like a, the claim is, I mean, this is a scientific tool, right? I mean, I think, I think the listeners need to be aware of that. Having not maybe read your article yet, certainly having not read your book, it's not out yet. Is it like, you know, uh, social psychology, promotes itself it presents itself as a hard science yeah and so this is supposed to be as dependable as reliable as a scientific of an instrument as say an x-ray machine would be right right like you know if you swallowed a toy dinosaur you could and you don't you didn't even realize it was in your stomach you could x-ray your stomach and see oh my god there's a toy i didn't know that was in there right in the same way this test is supposed to reveal like racism and you know implicit bias inside of you that maybe you didn't know uh, was in there. And, and what's interesting about this is that like within the field of psychology, there's there's a whole field called psychometrics, and the whole idea is like if we're going to release a uh, test that measures your anxiety or depression, it has to have certain standards. Like in much the same way, you wouldn't release a thermometer that's always off by thirty degrees. You don't want to unleash on the world the depression test that will tell people they're not suicidal when they are, or vice versa. For whatever reason, the implicit association test has basically like all the available evidence suggests it isn't even close to being accurate enough to be used in real world settings. But I can't really explain why no one ever put the brakes on and said, this test is really weak. We shouldn't use it. it it's still out there. It's still on Harvard's website because it tells people a sort of interesting story. And it, it explains racism in this interesting individual sort of counterintuitive way where, you know, you, the liberal, are the real racist that I think people find irresistible. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit off air about the topic of your book that you're currently writing. And this seems to the, the only way to explain this. I mean, I don't want to get too like conspiratorial about it, but it's, it's that despite the fact that, you know, the scientific validity of this instrument has been called in, into question by a number of experts, it's still being used. And perhaps you, you, you seem to argue, perhaps that's because it serves a very, uh, a, a very specific function in terms of legitimating our certain, uh, a certain kind of neoliberal hellscape, which tells us that actually structural change, you know, intense social structural change is no longer possible. And so we need to develop these little band-aid fixes. And this is a really prominent one. Maybe tell us a little bit about that argument. Yeah. So, I mean, part of my book is just going to explain a few examples of these ideas and, you know, debunk them to the extent they deserve debunking. But I'm also trying to build sort of a broader political theory for what the popularity of these ideas can reveal about our present age, our present political condition. And 
the idea I'm flirting with, and you know, I'd be curious to hear from you or your listeners or anyone else what they think, is that it, ideas like this would be less popular if there was any sense that we're addressing inequality and structural racism in real, comprehensive ways. Mm, it, yeah. it it's so obviously not the case that using a weak psychometric instrument to measure people's individual levels of implicit bias will get us anywhere near meaningfully addressing racial discrepancies and and it's such a clever way of you know i think probably accidentally accidentally clever way of papering over these like really important structural factors um that i, I can't help but think that if there was a little bit more hope of like actual redistribution and actual political will and actual political efficacy, people wouldn't buy stories like this. Right. Listeners will know that I had uh, Walter Ben Michaels on recently, who's famously made a very controversial strident argument uh, in, in his latest mass uh, audience a book that was written for a mass audience called the trouble with diversity. It's how we learn to love diversity and ignore inequality. And you're making a similar kind of argument, but perhaps you're avoiding uh, some of the, the sweeping claims that, that Walter is unfairly accused of. And you're pointing to actually like empirical evidence and empirical scientific tools that are being used to justify this turn to individualized bias as opposed, you know, as opposed to addressing uh, systemic societal uh, inequality. Yeah, and there's actually like a, a personal anecdote that I, I I think is a little bit revealing because when I um my parents when I was about to enter kindergarten they moved from Brighton, Mass, which is sort of a village of Boston. It's within the Boston school system. They moved us a mile up the road to Newton, which has uh, one of the best school systems in the country. They effectively moved us out of a not good majority minority school system to a great majority white school system. Now. Mm-hmm. There's different ways to analyze what they did. If you wanted to, you could give them an implicit association test and tell some complicated, twisting pretzel story of, oh, because of implicit bias, you didn't, you know, you, you didn't want your kids in school with black kids and Latino kids, and you decided this is you're tainted by racism, and you move them to the school district. I, I find that not just for personal reasons, not just because I don't think my parents are racist. I, I think it's much more likely that society societal structural racism has rigged the deck they've made it so that there is a quote-unquote rational decision to make to move to the suburbs because the school systems are better there because for decades boston school system has just been neglected and allowed some parts of it allowed to crumble that's not an accident and and for a long time progressives have gotten better about making these complicated arguments about how society's deck is rigged they put you in a position where you do the quote-unquote rational thing for your kid and you end up propping up these structures and you end up propping up these discrepancies and i to me that argument as complicated as it is is just makes a lot more sense than the idea that everyone is tainted or not tainted with racism and that's what guides our behavior Right. And also that, that, that idea that, you know, these individualized behaviors are indicative of implicit bias, it produces a diagnosis, which is very easily um, acknowledged and addressed by neoliberal capitalism, which is white guilt. Yeah. 
right? This sort of white liberal guilt, like, oh God, well, you know, I am, I'm an activist. I went to that, I went to that protest. I held up a sign, but I also shop at Whole Foods because I want my kids to eat organic produce. And I took my kid out of the public school because it was falling apart. And now I put him in a private school. I feel kind of guilty about that. Maybe I should go vote for this really woke Democrat and it'll absolve. You know, I listen to NPR. So like, how bad can I be? Right. There's just this constant mental strain, uh, you know, by these sort of middle-class, petty bourgeois, white liberals, because white guilt, although it can be debilitating and it can produce its own set of personal strains, it's something that that doesn't uh, it doesn't impede the you know the reproduction of neoliberal capitalism. Right, and in fact, uh, it can be reinserted into the circuits of of accumulation and, and consumption. Like you can consume your white guilt by consuming, you know, various forms of activism and politics as well. And so you could even argue that it's productive for neoliberal capitalism in those ways. Yeah, I think a lot of the, uh, the main uh, biggest audience for the implicit association test is white liberals. And I don't really get the sense that people take the IAT, realize they're biased and then say, oh, you know what, I'm going to pull my kids out of this private school. I want to invest in a local public school or I'm going to move to a less segregated neighborhood. I, I think taking the test and going through the ritual of saying how disturbed you are, that it revealed you are biased, is seen as an end in itself. And it, you know, uh, I don't know if that's accidental because I think a lot of the people who take the test benefit from the current system. They benefit from I'm happy to phrase it this way. They benefit in certain ways by what's known as white supremacism, by by a system in which, you know, certain groups get more of the stuff. And I think they would be hurt in certain ways. And I'm including, you know, my hometown of Newton Mass in this. If there was ever real redistribution, Newton would be a net loser because Newton has access to tremendous resources, the resources that allowed me to become a journalist. Um, and if you actually grapple with that, it doesn't feel good, like you actually need to think about what you have and why you have it and what you deserve, versus if you can just take this test and say, man, I'm implicitly biased, I got to work on that, I've got some personal psychological work to do, that that doesn't lead you anywhere, or at least in my experience, it doesn't. Right. I think, I think, I mean, you're, you're, you're certainly correct on one level. Um, the fact that we live in a hyper-competitive society and that uh, goods and services and opportunities are unfairly rationed to wealthier, typically whiter uh, people, um, that produces an unfair advantage. I mean, you're absolutely right to say then that, you know, folks like yourself and myself and others uh, do benefit from those forms of kind of like racialized uh, uh, neglect that, that results from neoliberal capitalism and the need to produce cheap labor. However, that's that's assuming that the society remains this kind of hyper competitive sphere where there's a scarcity of resources. I think ideally we want to work towards a more egalitarian socialist society where uh, you know we don't have to be so hyper competitive and dog eat dog uh, to our fellow <laughs> humans in order to to, to live a good uh, life. Right. As, as we do now. And so, you know, I think, I think both can be true and it just, that's just to sort of respond to your, your, your claim there. I think we can both say, yes, you did benefit from this structure. However, the society that we're fighting for will not be drawn along those lines of, of hyper competitiveness that requires certain kinds of uh, social and economic exclusion. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, I think you've probably thought a little bit more about what a, uh, 
better juster world would look like than I have. I do not <laughs> I do not have a comprehensive theory on that front. No, but I mean, but you, but that's, but I'm just saying, like, just to say that you did challenge me there, because typically when people say, "Well, I benefited from this," my my immediate reaction is say, "Tut tut tut, wait, wait, wait." <laughs> Did you really? But actually, yeah, I mean, because you did actually in a, in a sense in sort of like keeping out the competition, right? Like you, you at least. Yeah. But it's, it sounds like I don't want us to essentialize either. And it sounds like we grew up in different situations. And, um, hmm. you know, my my family's sort of hard scrabble generation was a couple generations ago, like in, hmm. in New York hmm. and stuff. And this is where I, I just have complicated feelings about white privilege because I think – like a lot of my privilege flowed out of the fact that I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts and had access to a great school system. And in Newton, I bet if you're born in Newton, the odds you're going to go to college are probably 80 or 90%. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of white cities where that's definitely not true, where the odds that you'll, you know, be mired in Oxycontin addiction these days are probably 30%. And that's, that's simply structural. That's simply because of where you're born and what resources you have access to. So, yeah, you just can't essentialize. It's not it's not just about what race you're born because, you know, a black person born in Newton has access to a lot of those same resources, but then they're hampered in other ways by, you know, law enforcement or or other serious issues. But yeah, I think what I'm saying is there's a chance you and I might not be able to solve inequality during this interview. Uh, impossible. We're going to do it. I've got five minutes to do it. So we're going to, we're going to get this shit. Done. So let's talk about having not completed your book yet, but you've been thinking a tremendous amount about it. The third component, we talked about social psychology, this sort of like scientific instrument that's supposed to reveal things about us in predictable manners. Right. And we're clearly we've been, the whole, the whole fucking episode we've been talking about social justice, the third leg of that stool that you presented for your book there are Ted talks. Yes. So what, how do TED Talks uh, function uh, in your sort of scheme? Yeah, well, it's basically what I found over and over. When you have these ideas that aren't that empirically supported but but catch on, TED Talks are often the vehicle for them to catch on. Um, there's this whole culture devoted to sort of quote-unquote like life hacks and to this idea that these like simple tools can really improve your life or to really improve society. Or maybe interventions is probably a better word than tools. So, so you're saying that I shouldn't name this episode uh, 10 Easy Ways to End uh, White Supremacist Mass Exactly. Lines. Or you will not believe this one quick trick <laughs> to end uh, white <laughs> Hey, that's white better. Hegemony. I'm going to go with yeah. that. If you, if you don't Please mind, do. I'm going I'm to use that. That would actually be good. Uh, so it's basically the same shit happens over and over. Uh, one or two weak, statistically underpowered studies that purport to show something come out. The author of that, of those studies gains media exposure, often through a TED Talk, sometimes through just other stuff, through bad science journalism, some of which I've, I've committed, I should acknowledge, uh, or through, through other means. And the idea snowballs. People make bigger and bigger claims about the idea, until we get to the point where, you know, the implicit association test can explain housing or policing. And and from there, it just, it, it gets so detached from the actual evidence supporting the idea that it becomes its own self-contained cultural meme. And people talk about it at parties and people start making money off it. It just, there's a sense in which these ideas take on a life of their own that's completely detached from the level of research supporting them. And, to me, the interesting question is, A, how that happens, and B, which types of ideas are more likely to enjoy that sort of balloon flying away on its own uh, benefit? 
Right. And I mean, it's, I think it's extra dangerous if you're trying to win a better world because these, these, these little enclaves, these little thought balloons that, that become unmoored from reality or empirical, yeah, the empirical world around us, they become increasingly detached from people's real lived experience. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a big problem that we're circling back to here now as, as, as using whiteness as this master narrative that can, that can try to understand, uh, mass, shooters uh it can understand militarism imperialism um you know the the decline of the the labor movement i mean it's 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 it's, it's this umbrella that's supposed to explain everything in a very knee-jerk way if you just sort of name it in left spaces everyone just kind of nods and you know snaps their fingers along but you you go throw that out there on a street corner when people are just trying to you know shuffle to work at 7 a.m uh, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Man? I'm just trying to feed my kids. You know, I don't have health care. Well, that actually that actually ties into one other sort of proto theory I'm working with, which is that because it's only the type of person who who gets a PhD in social psychology and gets to give a TED talk, it's safe to say they're drawn from like a pretty narrow slice of the socioeconomic spectrum. Like they're not they're not all rich, but they're very unlikely to come have have come from severe poverty. So that faith in these quick fixes, in these life hacks, that they can really make the world a better place, I, I think if you grow up in a broken neighborhood with no access to social services and someone comes up to you and says, hey, I've got a trick that you can just do for 10 minutes that will reduce inequality, you would probably tell them to go fuck themselves. But if you're – so yeah. grit, grit is a good example of this. Grit is this idea that if we teach inner city kids grittiness, like stick-to-itiveness – that can take a chunk out of the, um, you know, black-white test score divide and, and rich-poor test score divides and stuff like that. And in this case, the, the researcher behind it, Angela Duckworth, has been fairly responsible, but other people have run away with the claims. But, like, if you actually look at the history of schooling in the U.S. or, or, or racist policies toward black kids and black schools, you, you would have to be a little bit insane to think that teaching kids to work harder – or to have more stick-to-itiveness could address any of this. You would have to come from a place where you could look at examples of your friends and family members and say, huh, well, they worked really hard. They got they got ahead. This must There must be something to this idea, which Angela Duckworth's entire book, not her entire book, most of her book is anecdotes of people who are already successful, who she says, mm, yeah, oh, yeah. this person's successful. They overcame adversity. Therefore, grit's important. And yeah, there, there's you lose out on something when the people making these arguments and the people giving the TED talks, you know, they won and they know people who won, and I think that skews your view of the world. Right. I think the experience of the vast majority of Americans is one where not only for their own experience, but those immediately closest to them, it's people working their asses off year after year, decade after decade, and just getting shit Yeah, on. well, and, and, you know, imagine me coming from Newton. Like, all my friends worked hard, obviously. Everyone works hard. That's a given. Everyone works hard, unless you're, you know, uh, one of Donald Trump's relatives. Imagine if I said, well, you know, my friends growing up in Newton, they all worked hard, and they're doing okay. You know, why can't these people in Appalachia or these people in the South Bronx, why can't they just work harder? I mean, think about how much I would be missing if I just – took my own little slice of the world where hard work does pay off because we, we were born in the right place at the right time and tried to apply that as a theory to all of humanity. Right. And it just fundamentally ignores these deeper uh, social structures that produce, you know, people's uh, life chances in more more fundamental yep, ways. Exactly. 
Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this book, man. Uh, it's going to be great. It's coming out in about a year and a half's time. I think it's really important. It definitely puts some empirical meat on the types of arguments that uh, my guests have been making since the beginning of the show. And so uh, I'm really excited uh, for, for it to come out. So any any parting words about your research or uh, you know the social world around us? Any other any other massive problems that we're going to solve here in the next uh, two minutes? Uh, I mean, I was hoping to solve several other societal problems, but no. I mean, all I, all I would say of that is that if any of this resonates with the, your uh, listeners and they want to reach out, um, you know, I'm on Twitter and I, I'm still very early in this, and I can be swayed if people think I'm wrong about any of it. I'd love to hear from them. Yeah, I've got a lot of really great uh, people here, not only just academics, but people who are practitioners of this stuff in the, in the, in the quote unquote real world. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you want to reach out to Jesse, you can find him at Jesse Single on Twitter. I find, I find, find you, Jesse, to be an incredibly fair and reasoned, uh, you know, commentator on, on, on Twitter, which is like... <laughs> I mean, if that if that doesn't make you a fucking unicorn, I, like I don't. Yeah, know Yeah, I'm not sure that opinion right? is shared by a broad subset of Twitter, but I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, I'm not going to tell you why, but I'm going to get a lot of shit for having Jesse on the show. Yeah, this that week. might be true. <laughs> if you want to know why, go on Twitter and find out for yourself. Or or don't. But, uh, <laughs> or don't. Or better yet, you know, spend your time doing useful things. Uh, stay the hell off. Log off. Seriously, people. He's a journalist, and I'm a podcaster. We have to be on there. You don't log off people get a life. Uh, anyway, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us on the dead pundit society. I enjoyed it. I'm, I've enjoyed your articles. I'm going to post those up on the show notes for the people. And I look forward very much to your book coming out. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Thanks everybody for tuning into this week's episode. Thanks again to Jesse single contributing writer at New York Magazine. You can follow him on Twitter at Jesse Single. That is spelled at J-E-S-S-E-S-I-N-G-A-L. Looks like Singal. It's single. Keep an eye out for his book. It doesn't have a title yet because it's about a year and a half away, but it's going to be about the intersection of social psychology, TED Talk culture, and social justice. It's going to cover a lot of the themes that we talked about in the last half of the interview. And I think it's going to be really important and really informative to uh, sort of unveiling how we are to overcome the racist and racialized inequalities that uh, capitalism presents to us today in our present. I, I, I know I'm just going to go out there. I don't think that whiteness does it. This whiteness literature, this emphasis on toxic whiteness, it's just too big of a concept. It covers over too many distinctions, too much social stratification, and it groups together people who are just utterly victimized by the system alongside the people who are perpetrating the violence and the victimization. And so it's just not a useful concept. And the far right is making a lot of hay out of this theoretical and conceptual looseness. And we're losing over here on the left. I got to tell you, I'm sorry to say we're losing. The alt-right is making a lot of hay out of this. Uh, You know, Richard Spencer is just a virulent identitarian. He's proud of this notion of whiteness. He flips our, our, our arguments on their heads and he says, look, you people, right, the way the racists say, you know, you Afro-Americans are proud of your culture. Well, I'm proud of mine. What's wrong with that? 
right? And so the only way for us to get out of this vampire castle, to use a phrase of the late Mark Fisher, this vampire castle of essentialism and identitarianism is to overcome it with universal policies that talk about the broad processes of victimization in society. And that doesn't mean that everyone is equally victimized, but it does mean that the structures that lead to the victimization have common roots and that we need to be sure that we are pointing to those common roots to unite people in broad-based ways to, you know, to, to help the people who need it the most, to help all of us, to lift all of us while we lift the, the least among us. So with that being said, just a little self-plug here. I'm going to be on the Michael Brooks show next week. Many of my listeners will be familiar with Michael Brooks. I had him on the show a couple of months ago. He's a solid bro. <laughs> He's a fellow podcaster. He's working on his program to build the new left agenda, and I really respect what he's up to. So we're going to collaborate on this. We're going to talk about how to adequately face down the alt-right, how to how to spin their narrative of this sort of like faux identitarian, you know, uh, faux cultural appreciation, you know, style of thing that they do, this kind of tap dance, because it really has tied the left and progressives in knots. I mean, I am sick and tired of seeing otherwise good lefty journalists like Gary Young go into an interview with a member of the alt-right and get their ass handed to them. I'm really sick of it. And look, people will tell me, I've had arguments with friends of mine. They say, well, Gary Young didn't lose that argument. He exposed Richard Spencer as a Nazi. And it's like, okay, yeah, to us he did. You know, that's preaching to the choir. To us he did. To the millions, to the hundreds of millions of normies out there, Gary Young just got really huffy and indignant and mad. And he left, right? He said, well, this interview is over. Oh, this is just, uh, this is ridiculous. You know, you can't do that. You have to face down their arguments with arguments of your own. You have to challenge their logic with our logic. You can't just get mad, call them a Nazi, you know, flip the table over, metaphorically speaking, and walk out of the room in a huff. Because the people who are watching what we do on a daily basis, they see that. They see a highly emotional you know, left that has no arguments and no, no belief in, in its own positions. And this is just wrongheaded. So I could go on about that for the next hour, but I won't. Check me out on Michael Brooks' show next week. I'll push that on my social media, at Dead Pundits on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. I'll put that out there. Thanks, everybody, for the, you know, the dozen of you or, or whoever are still listening. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...